Hi there, and welcome to Naturally Recovering Autism. And thank you so much for being here today and being a proactive parent and getting what you need to help your child on your journey to autism recovery. And remember that the definition of recovery is to regain health, and that's what we want to do for our kids. As you know, my my own son was once diagnosed with autism, and I was told that he could not recover and that we should drug him and try maybe behavioral therapies, and that would be it. We would be managing symptoms, and and he was pretty severe at one point. And, um, you know, it, 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 I, I understand the concern, the worry of, of can this really be possible for my child, but you don't know until you try and if you have all the right resources. And it took me over a decade of research, and um, my, my holistic background let me to believe, too, that this could be done naturally. And so now it's been 13 years. Actually, I will say happy birthday to my son. His 23rd birthday is tomorrow. And uh, he is now fully recovered. He's away at college, lives on his own. He, he does none of the symptoms he once had of autism. So I just want to share that with you in a, a, a you know, a, a blip of hope for you, if, if nothing else, to help you know that, that autism recovery is happening all over the world. And yes, it is important to have the right resources to make that happen. And in honor of this being Autism Awareness Month, I am releasing a brand new resource, one new resource, natural resource, every day for 30 days of this entire month of April to help you on your journey with autism recovery. So you can find those resources at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 30 days. That's three zero days. And I hope it's helpful for you. I'm kind of excited about it. Um, It's uh, something new that I wanted to do for this special month and to honor you as a parent who is working hard or working hard to do what you can to give your child the optimum results. And today uh, we are discussing on the show, we are going to be talking about genetics. Now, I've done a show in the past on genetic SNPs or SNPs, which we'll talk a little bit about today. Um, but we're going to uh, we're we're going to take that a step further with some of the important pieces that not only for testing options but nutritional needs for very specific genetic variants. So knowing what environmental factors are in place, what things that you might might benefit your child or make them worse if they have specific genetics involved. And um, everything I'll link to on the page, uh, a page I created for you uh, for this show will be at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 35, just the numbers 35. And today we have Dr. Bob Miller with us. And I'm excited. Dr. Bill Miller has been with us before, uh, and he is a specialist in traditional naturopathic medicine in the field of genetic specific nutrition. He has earned his naturopathic degree from Trinity School of Natural Health and is board certified through the ANMA. In 1993, he opened the Tree of Life practice and he has served as a traditional naturopath for 25 years. And for the past several years, he has been engaged exclusively with nutritional genetic variants and related research specializing in nutritional support for those with chronic Lyme's disease. Dr. Miller, uh, welcome and thank you again for being here with us today. I appreciate your your time and your expertise. Always a pleasure to be here. uh, You're very knowledgeable. You're giving great information, so it's always good to be here. It's my pleasure. I really enjoy being able to to share these resources. They're so valuable and 
and uh, and parents need them. And a one in 39 kids is diagnosed with autism today. So something's going on. And you and I know that kids are recovering. And we also know every child's level of recovery is different, but they can get better. And most of this is really a biological health related issue. And the environment does play a factor. So, so would you give us some background, um, you know, for people maybe who hadn't listened to the uh, show before on some genetics, just a little background on what, you know, SNP, the SNPs are and, and some of this nutritional, the nutritional aspects. I know you call it functional genomics. So if you could explain that a little bit. Sure. Well, let's first start out with uh, what a SNP is. It stands for a single nucleotide polymorphism. So on the end of our genes, we have these nucleotides, and uh, they're generally abbreviated C, T, G, and such. And like, for example, the C is the cytosine, and the T is the thiamine. And there are some of these nucleotides that should be attached on the end that are optimal, that make that gene work optimally. Now let's first talk about what the genes do. They make enzymes. And of course, we inherit our genes from our parents. So we get uh, one of those nucleotides from mother, one of the nucleotides from father. So that's how the, the person gets their, their pattern. And for each of, the, each of the SNPs that makes the enzymes, uh, there's an ideal nucleotide that goes on the end. And that one gives it the most function. But let's also step back. So what happens is we eat fats, carbohydrates, and proteins. We drink water, we breathe air, and we're exposed to sunlight. And it's absolutely astonishing to me that millions of processes go on that turn that into our hair, our skin, our blood, our neurotransmitters, making energy, our digestive enzymes. I mean, it's truly miraculous that this process occurs. Well, it occurs because these enzymes are taking one substance, pulling in some what are called cofactors, and making something else. And then another enzyme comes along and takes that and pulls something in and makes something else. And it is so complex, I don't think we can begin to understand the complexity of how the human body is working. And these enzymes that make this happen are coded, in a sense, from the genetics that we inherit from our parents. And if all of those nucleotides are right where they should be, we're making optimal enzymes. If there's a swap where we get like that polymorphism where a different one is there, that enzyme may not be as effective as doing that job. So for example, if you just in inherit one of the nucleotides that may not be optimal, you may see a 20 to 30% reduction in that enzyme. If you get it from both parents, you may see a little bit more reduction. Now, people are really focused and, and thinks that you know genetics is the key, and it is important, but we have to keep in mind that the genetics makes the enzyme. That's only a portion. The other portion is you have to have the ingredients that go into it and the cofactors. So if you have a perfectly working gene and a perfectly working enzyme and you don't have the cofactor, things are not going to work very well. Then there's a third component to that is there are some things that will block the enzyme. Some heavy metals. Uh, there's some concern about Roundup or glyphosate. So if we're exposed to some of these chemicals, again, you could have perfect genetics, perfect cofactors, but you may have one of these blocking agents slowing down the whole process. So 
It's the genetics that makes the enzymes. It's the cofactors that are part of it. And then there is anything that might block it, particularly lead is very insidious, mercury. So it becomes a very complex issue. And that's why, you know, there was a big interest many years ago in genetics. Oh, this is going to be the answer to everything. And then they found out, oh, well, it doesn't seem to be as accurate as we thought. And that would make sense if you're just looking at the genetic component. So it's what you inherit, cofactors, and anything blocking. And one of the things I'm getting very concerned about is mold. Uh, mold may be something that, uh, that blocks some of these processes. So after the break, what we'll do then is we're going to talk about how functional genomics uh, differs from the typical genetics where people are looking for, you know, do you have the genetic that predispositions you to a disease? Perfect. We're going to take a short break right here. And when we come back, we will continue this discussion on genetics and environmental factors and nutritional components that can, uh, that can both help and, uh, and cause a little bit more trouble for them both ways. So stay with us. You're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas. And uh, stay with us again. We will be right Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I am your host, Karen Thomas, and we are coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio. Today we are talking about genetics, genetic SNPs, and also how the environmental factors affect genes and nutritional support for them as well. And we have Dr. Bob Miller with us today, and uh, we've been talking before the break, we started talking about some of those environmental factors that can actually cause some harm to these genes or disrupt or block the enzymes that are necessary for them carrying out uh, their their entire process of what's necessary. And, and some of that, you might have heard things like MTHFR, certain genes that have to do with detoxification, um, and various things that they support for us. So heavy metals and things like glyphosate, which is in the weed killer Roundup, have been known to be uh, detrimental. And then, uh, Dr. Miller, before the break, you started talking about uh, one of the co-infections, which I know are very, very important. I talk about this in my program all the time. It is crucial that you work with these co-infections, mold, Lyme, uh, pans, or strep, because they are commonly a reason why a child might plateau and not be getting better, and uh, parents are really unaware of it. I will link to everything on today's show at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 35, and I will add in the link for last week's show, number 34, was on uh, mold when we uh, I interviewed Dr. Jody DeShore, and we were talking more about the mold aspect. So you can learn more um, specifics, but uh, Dr. Miller, would you kind of talk about how mold interferes with these genes? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the theories that... Uh, that we were proposing, and I just spoke on this at a recent uh, autism event, uh, is that mold triggers inflammation. But before I go there, I'd like to just back up a step. Uh, there's an important uh, molecule inside the body called glutamate. And glutamate is actually used to make glutathione, but it's also a neurotransmitter that makes you very intelligent, highly motivated, go-getter. Genetically, you see a lot of it in people of English, Irish, German, uh, Ashkenazi, Jewish, and uh, many Asians. They're, they're naturally high in autism, in, uh, naturally high in glutamate. And glutamate also needs to turn into what's called GABA. And GABA is the don't worry, relax, be happy. So there needs this glutamate to GABA conversion. 
Now, what happens, there's an enzyme called GAD, G-A-D, that supports that glutamate to GABA conversion. Interestingly, that enzyme is blocked by inflammation and infection. So I think this is incredibly significant because many of the properties that you'll see in kids who are ADD or autistic, uh, the scientists are telling us there is a glutamate component to it because glutamate is a neuroexcitatory uh, transmitter that makes the brain go too fast and accounts for that hyperactivity. So I believe that's why even in autism, setting aside, uh, or I'm sorry, in Lyme disease, you'll see many people when they get Lyme disease, they become very anxious. Or as people age or become inflamed, they can become very anxious because that glutamate to GABA conversion is not occurring. And I believe this is a very significant component as to what's happening to all these children. And even aside from the autism group, when, when you speak to teachers who've been teaching for 15 years or more, you'll say, what's, how are kids today versus 15 years ago? And they'll say, by and large, everyone is more anxious, having a little more trouble focusing, uh, a little bit more aggressive. And even if you just look at the world right now, turn on the news for 10 minutes, there appears to be higher levels of anxiety and aggressiveness that we haven't seen before. So I'm sure there's many factors, but I, I think it's safe to say that a factor, if not the factor, may be that we're having some difficulty turning that glutamate into GABA due to inflammation or infection. So when a co-infection comes along, that can make the anxiety even worse. Now, back to the mold. What's interesting, I also believe that there's a very good chance mold is getting stronger, uh, particularly because of many of the things we're putting on the ground. The earth might be losing some of its vitality. Uh, I live in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, Dutch country, and I've spoken to some of my Amish clients, and they're telling me that when they plant their strawberries in the spring, they put straw on the ground, and they're noticing it's taking much longer for the straw to break down, and it's also getting moldier than it did before. So even in my own practice, aside from from those with autism, when I started, we didn't even talk about mold. Uh, and now, like one out of three or one out of four people, I'm very concerned that mold is becoming an issue for them. Now, let's talk about why mold can be a problem. And I think this is the crux of what we're going to be researching this year, and we'll be talking about our research project at the end of the show. But there's an interesting enzyme called NOx, N-A-D-P-H, oxidase. And this plays a very important role. Its sole purpose is to make inflammation. It makes superoxide, it makes hydrogen peroxide, and then stimulates what are called mast cells, M-A-S-T, cells. And this is not a bad thing. In animal studies where they take the NOx enzyme out, the animal dies of infection. So it plays a very important role when we get virus or bacteria or even a cancer cell, the NOx enzyme kicks in makes these free radicals for the purpose of destroying the pathogen. And again, if that didn't happen, we would, uh, we would not survive. However, what we're observing is I believe there's now many environmental factors that we weren't exposed to 50 to 75 years ago that is overstimulating this enzyme. And we're making too much inflammation, too many mast cells. If anyone's ever listened to Dr. Thea Hardy's a brilliant researcher from Tufts University. He's put out the theory that autism is related to these mast cells passing the blood-brain barrier, 
hitting the hypothalamus and putting him into this hyper state. And uh, I tremendously respect his work, and, and I have a sneaking suspicion we're going to find that he was uh, correct. Now, he's still doing research, but I think it's one of the most plausible theories I've heard so far as to why we're seeing a rise in autism and just overall a rise in anxiety and uh, aggressiveness. So mold will stimulate this mast cell because the mast cell wants to create the, the histamine to go after it. And when we talk more about the NADPH steel, we can get into the other factors. But here's why this NADPH steel is so important. Um, it actually uses a molecule called NADPH to make that inflammation. And, uh, and after the break, what we can do is we can talk about why this NADPH is so important and why overusing it to make mast cells uh, can be detrimental in two different directions. Yeah, this is a really important topic. Um, again, I'll, I'll link to uh, show number 34, last week's show with Dr. DeShore on mold where, and a couple others that we've talked about in the past because mold being one of these important co-infections to know about, mainly because it is creating so much inflammation in the body that our children's brains and guts and everything just can't recover from them unless we know properly what to do. So stay with us. You're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and we will be right Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and we are coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio. Today, we have Dr. Bob Miller with us, and we are talking about genetics, uh, genetic variants. Uh, we'll talk about a little bit about testing and and uh, and things now that are also stimulating them, maybe improperly creating inflammation in the body and how that's affecting these genes. So, Dr. Miller, you st started to talk before the break a little bit about NADPH, and um, can you can you give us some more background on, on what that is and what kind of environmental or other factors might be affecting these genes? Sure. I believe we found something uh, very significant. Uh, NADPH is a fascinating molecule. So let's stop, step back first and talk about detoxification. So what causes all this neural inflammation and inflammation throughout the body is free radicals. And as we all know, everything's made out of atoms. So you've got a neutron and a proton and you have an electron that spins. A free radical is when one of that, when that electron gets ripped off and it's unbalanced. That atom doesn't like being that way. And it will happily steal from someone else, who then steals from someone else, or an antioxidant can come along that has a spare electron. And that antioxidant says to the, uh, to the free radical, you don't look very happy there. Here you go, I got a spare electron, chill out. So antioxidants donate that electron and everything's fine. So that's why antioxidants are so important. But let's look at glutathione, one of the master antioxidants. After it donates that electron, it actually is called oxidized glutathione and it needs to be recharged, another electron needs to be put back on, and NADPH is what does that. Now, interestingly, if that oxidized glutathione doesn't get what's called reduced, in other words, put back to its active form again, it will combine with oxygen to make superoxide free radical, another free radical, and then that'll sop up your nitric oxide and make another free radical called peroxynitrite. So as we were doing our research into functional genomics, which is looking at function, not disease genes, we began to realize that NADPH is critical. 
that if we don't have enough NADPH, we're not going to recycle our antioxidants. NADPH is also needed to make a very important molecule called nitric oxide. And there's also a process where our, what's called heme, breaks down, again, to make very powerfully important things like bilirubin, turn your iron into to, uh, ferroportin, stimulate your nerve two, is dependent upon NADPH. So now genetically in our functional genomics, we are looking at the gen genetic variants that could slow down or impede the production of this NADPH. But more importantly, before the break, we spoke about this NOx enzyme, NADPH oxidase. It makes free radicals in response to virus, bacteria, or any uh, other pathogen. So I give the example, think of NADPH as a police officer in town that will help you if you're in an accident, it does all kinds of good things for the community. But if a robber or murderer comes into town, the police officer jumps into action, will apprehend or kill that, that bad person. And that's a good thing, unless the police officer is carried away and starts shooting the citizens. And I think what may be happening is environmental factors are overstimulating this NOx enzyme, saying we got somebody to fight, and we are making excess superoxide, excess mast cells, and that's why so many people are talking about mast cell activation, where they're getting red in the face, where they're itchy, they're getting hives, uh, because these mast cells are becoming overactive. Mast cells are not bad. They play an important role. But if they're overstimulated, that's when they become a problem. As we spoke earlier, mold is one of the things that will stimulate this NOx enzyme into action. And if we're exposed to a lot of mold, it's going to happen. But one of the things we started to study was what are some of the other factors that are overstimulating this NOx enzyme? And we were pretty stunned at all the things that will stimulate it. So we started looking at one of the major things that stimulates it is something called sulfites. Now, sulfites need to turn into sulfates. And there's an enzyme called SUOX, sulfur oxidase, that turns the sulfites into sulfates. And then those sulfates are used in what's called a phase two detoxification program called sulfation. And sulfation clears many xenobiotics and what are called the catecholamines, which are your excitatory neurotransmitters. So you see what's happening here, Karen? If we don't have the sulfation going on, we're now not clearing many of these excitatory neurotransmitters, dopamine in particular, in addition to being an excitatory neurotransmitter, stimulates the NOx enzyme to make more inflammation. So why may that SUOX enzyme not be doing its job? Well, I'm a big fan of Stephanie Senna from MIT, a brilliant researcher, and she and I talk on a regular basis, we become good friends, and she believes that glyphosate, through a multi-step process that's we probably don't need to get into today, but it inhibits something called heme that is one of the cofactors for that SUOX enzyme. So you see what's happening here. This glyphosate, if indeed it's impacting heme, that SUOX enzyme doesn't have a cofactor. So consequently, sulfites don't turn into sulfates. Sulfites stimulate that NOx enzyme. 
the things that are not sulfated because of that conversion not occurring stimulate the NOx enzyme. So glyphosate very, may be very well impacting the sulfation process. So therefore, the sulfites are stimulating NOx. The sulfates, things not cleared, are, are stimulating NOx. And this NOx enzymes keep saying, NADPH, I need you to make inflammation. I need you to make inflammation. That's why I'm calling it the NADPH steel. So if you have genetic issues that you don't make enough NADPH, you're exposed to more pathogens that need to be cleared by glutathione and you have a higher need for NADPH. And then the NOx enzyme says, sorry, we got a robber here, we got to take care of it. That NADPH steel has the potential to be a very significant factor in what we're seeing today. Does that make sense, Karen? It does. I think it's it would be important to talk about that NADPH pH steel itself and, and you know, cer certain things that are contributing to it, as, as I guess you mentioned with the glyphosate issue. And I did interview Dr. Stephanie Seneff uh, on sulfation uh, specifically, so I will link to that show as well on the page that I created for this show at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 35, just the numbers 35. Uh, we need to take a short break right here. Uh, you're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm Karen Thomas. Please stay with us. We will be right well, hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and we are coming live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio. And I do want to put a little plug in to remember that this is the month of April, which is Autism Awareness Month. And for the entire month of April, I am releasing 30 days of awareness in honor of that Autism Awareness Month. And you can, for every day, for 30 days, for this entire month, I will be releasing a new natural resource for you. And you can uh, get those at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 30 days. And that's the number 3030, so 30 days. Um, so I hope that's helpful for you. And today we're, we're talking with Bob Miller here on the show about gene genetics, but we're going to talk more about functional genomics as well. About There's traditional testing, which looks for more of the disease issues. And then there's also things that impact function. And so that's what we've been discussing. And before the break, we were talking about things that affect things like sulfation and um, environmental factors. So Dr. Miller, can you kind of just continue with where we left off with those aspects? Sure. Well, we were talking about the NADPH steel. So that is where the NOx enzyme, NADPH oxidase, takes the very important molecule called NADPH and says, okay, don't recycle your antioxidants, don't make energy, uh, let's not break down the heme, just come over here right now and make free radicals. Again, under normal circumstances, that's good and necessary. But as we've done research, we found that there's environmental factors that impact that. So we spoke about mold as one of them, and then right before the break, we spoke about sulfites, that if sulfites don't turn into sulfates, the sulfites will stimulate NOx, the things that are supposed to be cleared by sulfation don't get uh, cleared by sulfation. They stimulate NOx, but there's a couple others. Smoking or any air pollution will stimulate it. Now, earlier in the show, we spoke about glutamate. Glutamate makes you intelligent, highly motivated go-getter. It needs to turn into GABA. If that doesn't happen, the glutamate goes too high, and unfortunately, that high glutamate will stimulate NOx. And I think in one of our other shows, we spoke about iron. Um, 
Iron, of course, is a very important mineral. Got to have it. But if it's not chaperoned properly or in excess, it can be one of the nastiest free radicals. And it stimulates NOx. And particularly among the English, the Irish, the German, the Ashkenazi Jews, very common to have genomics or genetics that will cause you to overabsorb iron slightly. And then there's something called the Fenton reaction that makes hydroxyl radicals. Now, the other thing that we're looking at is oxalates. And uh, we are really starting to research this intently. Oxalates are interesting, uh, interesting things. They're in some of the healthiest foods. Spinach, kale, nuts have these oxalates. And if you look at them under a microscope, they look like tiny little razor blades. And interestingly, if your gut is doing okay, these oxalates just pass right through. Not a problem. But if we get irritation to the gut and a leaky gut, these oxalates can get inside the body. And that's why they're associated sometimes with things like fibromyalgia. When somebody has too many high oxalates, you just squeeze their arm a little bit, they hurt. Or they'll have a little bit of pain with urination. But it's also stimulatory to the brain, but also stimulatory to the NOx enzyme. So sometimes people think, well, I'm going to really eat healthy. I'm going to do a lot of spinach and kale and nuts. And under some circumstances, that can actually make you worse. And then the oxalates will stimulate that NOx enzyme. Now, the other thing that will stimulate the NOx enzyme is histamine. Well, histamine is a byproduct of the mast cell activation. So you see how this thing can just feed upon itself. And then finally, there's something called uh, mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin, which again is a good thing. It supports the growth of new cells. mTOR is needed to take that, uh, that infant into the baby or infant into the adult, keeps the adult growing new cells. But there's a process called autophagy, the cleaning of the cells. And when mTOR is activated, it shuts down autophagy. And again, we don't have time to get into all of this, but we've researched how there's multiple environmental factors that is upregulating this mTOR, which is then again is upregulating the NOx. And even some low-frequency EMF is stimulating the NOx enzyme. And then there's additionally some genetic issues where people have trouble with what's called their calcium voltage channels. And calcium gets carried into the cell by these voltage channels. There's now strong belief that constant exposure to EMF, electromagnetic fields, is overstimulating that calcium into the cells, creating more superoxide, more what's called INOS, and making more inflammation. And those who have genetic weakness in those calcium voltage channels are even more susceptible. And clearly, as you know, Karen, we are living in an era that we've never experienced before and don't know the, the detrimental effects. Everybody's got Wi-Fi in their house. Cell phones are, you know, everywhere. You know, if you go somewhere in the public, like if you're at a conference and you look at your, look at your Wi-Fi, there's like 20 of them that come up. Uh, and then we're living near cell towers. And cumulatively, we may not know what the effects are of this chronic exposure to EMF because it may be driving more inflammation. And there's many credible people that are very concerned about 5G 
and how this may make things worse. Yeah. Uh, we consult with people all the time who tell me they're EMF sensitive. I speak to people who have to live out in the middle of the woods in a log cabin because they just cannot be around the, uh, the EMF. And so if you're exposed to EMF and mold and glyphosate, you know, that may be the three things that make the, the perfect storm. And there are studies. I've, I've done an interview on electromagnetic field pollution, and on April 30th, I'll be doing another one with Corey Hillis, who is an expert in this field, and, and we'll be linking to over 4,000 studies that have been done. This is a very big issue today, and I think it needs to be taken a little bit more seriously than most people understand, and how you can protect yourselves, that's what we're, we'll be getting into as well, but um, they're putting satellites up, so even if you're out in the woods, you'll eventually not really be able to get away with it, uh, away from it, and the, the studies have shown that that mold grows 600 times faster in the presence of electromagnetic field pollution Mm -hmm. than when it's away from it. And so that's what's making these molds so much stronger, I believe, is that the electromagnetic field radiation is allowing its growth and it's uh, it's causing so many more issues. Uh, So that's very important. And I will, I'll link to uh, an episode I did in the past, but we do have another one coming in the future. And I do want people to understand the importance of, of protecting yourself from electromagnetic field pollution. Oh, absolutely. And uh, interestingly, I, uh, I developed my own software that analyzes gen- genetics, and I you know, provide this to health professionals. And it was just a couple months ago that we decided that we're going to go down the path of just looking at detox pathways and how environmental factors are impacting us. So on this September, I'm having a conference for medical professionals, and the whole focus is going to be how environmental factors are impacting those with genetic weakness the most. And what I often say to folks is that, you know, unfortunately, many of the people that are autistic today, uh, the genetic patterns that's leading them to autism wouldn't have meant a thing 50 to 75 years ago. That there's nothing new in us genetically, but genetic weakness and detoxification didn't matter 75 years ago, 100 years ago, but now it does. And those who have that genetic weakness are being hit the hardest by all these environmental factors. Absolutely. A little bit more susceptible susceptibility. And with so much going on today in our environment, we need to, to know what we can do to protect ourselves. We need to take a short break right here. You're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. I am your host, Karen Thomas. Please stay with us. We will be right back. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and we are coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio. And today we are talking with Dr. Bob Miller about functional genomics. And the importance of that is knowing how genes function and how they're disrupted and knowing how you can help prevent some of this disruption um, because a lot of it is environmentally affected. So, Dr. Miller, you want to talk a little bit more about functional, the, the, the functional aspects of genes? Sure. Well, you know, genetics has been focused on quite a bit on, on disease. So, you know, researchers will look at someone who has a disease, they'll look at their genome, and they'll try to find what genetic variants might be more prone in them. And that's fine. You know, for example, we have the BRCA genes and the autism genes and things like that. But the dilemma that people are running into is that, yes, for example, a lot of people who have the BRCA genes get breast cancer. I'm sorry, a lot of the people with breast cancer have the BRCA genes, but a lot of people have the BRCA genes who never get breast cancer. There's a lot of people who have dementia who have the APOE genetic variants, but there's a lot of people with the APOE variants that never get, um, never get dementia. 
So this is kind of like the dilemma. So uh, the, the theory that I'd put out on that is that is a risk factor, but it's like the 3D chess game played underwater. There's multiple, multiple factors. And that's where we get into functional genomics. So we're not looking at disease. That's what a geneticist does. You know, I'm a naturopath. I'm not a geneticist, so I don't claim to be. But we look at the genetics that might, in fact, impact how you make the enzyme that breaks down histamine, how you might clear histamine, how you might turn that glutamate into GABA, how you might, in your entire pathway, make your glutathione, how you might carry your fats into the cell. Those are the things we look at in functional genomics, not disease, but where function might be impaired. And the hypothesis we put forward is that when you've got multiple functional weaknesses, then probably amplified by genetic factors, that's when the body starts to dysfunction and set yourself up for inflammation. The traditional naturopathic philosophy is that high levels of inflammation over time is what sets you up to age prematurely and be susceptible to, uh, to breaking down. And, you know, that theory has been around for a long time, kind of pushed aside and now being looked at again by the, uh, by the scientists saying, yeah, we do think inflammation is the root cause. So those, uh, those crazy naturopaths from 100 years ago were probably spot on that it's inflammation that is the trigger for many of the things we're seeing today. So that's what we look at. We look at function. We don't look at the BRCA genes. We don't look at the dementia genes. We don't look at birth defect genes. We look at the enzymes or the genes that would impact your ability to use fats, make glutathione recycle your antioxidants, such as the NADPH. And this is what functional medicine doctors do. So I've created software called Functional Genomic Analysis for functional medicine doctors. And then I created my own genetic, uh, my own chip called Your Genomic Resource that they use to look at function, not disease. So they can support that function. Let's just talk about histamine a little bit. Uh, there's a gene called ABP1 that makes the DAO enzyme that breaks down your histamine. Well, if that's deficient and some well-meaning person says, oh, do kombucha and miso and sauerkraut, you're going to do worse because you don't have the ability to break down the histamine foods. And then sadly, histamine stimulates the NOx enzyme and stimulates the mast cells. I mean, so many people have histamine problems. You know, they get the flushing in the face. They got the spring and fall allergies. Uh, scratch your skin a little bit, you get that red raised line. You know, intolerant to heat and cold. Um, all of those things can be from high levels of histamine. So here again, you can be doing something that you think is a good idea and bad. We talked about glutamate earlier. If you do, do too much bone broth, that's very high in glutamate. Now again, bone broth is a wonderful food, but if your glutamate is already high and you start putting more glutamine in, you can then block that glutamate to glutamine conversion and make the situation worse. Which takes me back to, we can't have a cookie cutter, here's what we do for fill in the blank, no matter what we're talking about. The future, I believe, of, of being healthy is going to be personalized for the individual. Because what can be helpful for one person can be harmful to the next. So to label a condition and say, oh, this is good for it, might be good some of the time, but it very well might be bad. And that's one of the most surprising things I see with individuals. I'll talk to folks and say, you know, it doesn't look like this histamine thing is going on. And it's like, 
yeah, but somebody told me to do bone broth and sauerkraut and miso and kombucha, and they were making it worse. Now, for someone else, that might be the best thing they could do. So, which takes me back to, we have to have personalized for each individual. Right. It, it, I, uh, I have a program I teach muscle testing, and because I think it's important to know with every food or product to know if that product is acceptable. And then if it is, how much? Like you might eat, be okay with a little bone broth, like one or two tablespoons to line the gut lining before you eat. But anything more than that might be too much, especially in the beginning while you're sort of restoring the system. So um, we're going to take a short break right here. Uh, you're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. Please stay with us. We will be right back. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I am your host, Karen Thomas, and we are coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio. Radio. And do remember for this entire month of April, because it's Autism Awareness Month, I am releasing one new free resource every day for the entire 30 days of the month. And you can get that at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 30 days, and that's the number 330. And everything that you can find from this show today will be at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 35. We have Dr. Bob Miller here with us today, and uh, we're talking more about functional genomics which the functions of genes and things that can disrupt their ability to function properly. So we have just a little bit of time left. Dr. Miller, could you tell us, I know that you have a study coming out and you're going to look at how some of these genes and their functions are affected uh, in children with autism. Is that, is that right? Yes. What we want to do, we, we've done uh, seven studies on uh, Lyme disease. Now we want to start our first one on uh, on autism. So what we're looking to do is we're looking to collect the, the genome, hopefully from a couple hundred uh, children who have autism. And <clears throat> what we can use, if someone has done 23andMe on their child uh, prior to uh, August of 17, uh, we can take that data and, and run a report. If, uh, if somebody did it after that point and has version 5, unfortunately that's not usable. But if somebody's done that, they can call our office at 717- Seven three three two zero zero three, or just email us at research at t o l. That's t is in Tom, o is in Oscar, l is in Larry. Health h e a l t h dot com, and there'll just be a little simple release form that uh, you know you're releasing this the, the data. And of course, we never share it with anybody. You can be anonymous. You can put yourself in as Mickey Mouse. We don't care. Um, and then what we'll do, we want to have those two to three hundred children, and we want to look at that group, not an individual, if they have more genetic variants, for example, that would lead to the sulfite to sulfate problem, that would lead to less production of NADPH, that would lead to, uh, you know, that glutamate not being converted to GABA. And then we want to present that, if we can, at the TACA event in uh, October, but for sure at our functional genomic conference that we hold for doctors in uh, in November in uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania. If any Professionals are listening to this. Uh, just go to nutrigeneticresearch.org, and you'll get our uh, information on our September conference on on uh, environmental toxins, and uh, and then our November conference on uh, on uh, we're going to talk about neurotransmitters. Uh, but the uh, when the parents participate, then they will get a report back, a free report back on their child, and then compare that to the results. So. Uh, it's all free, you know, unless you don't have uh, 23andMe version 3 or 4. You can purchase the YGR kit, but we're not doing this as a, you know, to sell our kits. But if somebody really wants to participate and they don't have that data, uh, 
they can get. They get a free report, the free results, and uh, it'll be very fascinating because we're comparing it to a study that was done by the University of Arizona that actually showed some nutrients high and low in autistic children, and it ties perfectly into the research we're doing here. And that's what I just presented at a, uh, a talk event uh, just a couple weeks ago, how those, those, uh, those genomics line up with the actual uh, labs. So again, the telephone number is 717-733-2003 or uh, research at tolhealth.com. And uh, we'll be very curious to see if some of these functional pathways are off that specifically allows these children to be more susceptible to environmental toxins. Because again, on a closing remark, genetics hasn't changed. You know, nobody's running around today that wasn't here 100 years ago. But what has changed is our environment. And some of these genetic weaknesses in our environment didn't matter back then. But now we're being impacted. Those who have genetic weakness in some of these pathways are being more strongly impacted uh, than they were in the past. And then, as we said, the mold might be getting stronger as well. And we didn't have EMF 24-7. So uh, we're anxious to do this to, uh, to give hope to parents that there might be some ways to... Uh, to compensate, whether it's glutamate or histamine or iron or the sulfite to sulfate conversion. Bottom line, usually creating uh, more mast cell activation, more histamine, more glutamate. I tend to think those are significant factors. May not be the only ones, may even be a part, but I think they are definitely a part of what's going on, not only with autistic children, but the world in general at this time. Yeah, this has been a really, really helpful uh, topic. I think for parents, you know, you you might even get genetic testing done and then you wonder, well, now what do I do with this? What do I make of it? You can see symptoms in your children from certain foods or things that they're exposed to, but things like environmental factors that you might even not be aware that they're so susceptible to, such as in uh, the EMS. So I'll link again to everything at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 35. Thank you, Dr. Miller, again, for being here with us today. We greatly appreciate your your help, your resources, and uh, and with you being here uh, with us today. Uh, you're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. This is Karen Thomas, and thank you for being here and being a proactive parent, and we look forward to seeing you again next week.